Yo, what's up, Turtle fans? Welcome back to another episode of Booyaka Show, a TMNT podcast. As always, I am your host, Zach Norris, and in today's episode, we're jumping back into San Diego Comic-Con coverage with another TMNT panel. That's right, guys. The last TMNT panel episode was great. I got a ton of awesome feedback. Thank you guys for that. So I actually sat in on IDW's TMNT Road to 100 panel, and as you can probably guess, This panel is about the Ninja Turtles comic books and the wild ride they're on as they near issue 100. The panel featured three names that Turtle comic fans are definitely familiar with. We heard from Kevin Eastman, Tom Waltz, and Bobby Curnow. These three gentlemen are the main driving force behind the story of the TMNT comics. The three of them work on the story together. Tom scripts it. Bobby edits it. On top of his story duties, Kevin also bangs out variant covers for every issue. Of course, they've received some help here and there from great contributors throughout the years. Mateus Santuloco on Secret History of the Foot, different teams behind various miniseries over the years, and a slew of great writers on the TMNT Universe stuff, etc. But they're the creative core behind this version of Turtles, and they spent almost an hour talking just Turtle comics. How we you know, got started in year one to where we're at now in City at War, on the road, to issue 100. The panel was moderated by Patrick Ellers. If that name sounds familiar, then you've definitely been doing a good job of reading the latest TMNT issues. In the back of those recent books, there's a section titled TMNT and Oral History. This oral history tells the story of IDW's Turtle Comics from year one to now, and Patrick conducted those interviews and then sliced and diced them into the written version you'll find in the back of your books. Props to him for such a rad job on those, and he was a great moderator for the panel. But as always, guys, before we play the panel, you know we've got some shout-outs to do, so let's hear those real quick. To start, I want to touch on shout-outs from the last episode and reiterate that my San Diego Comic-Con experience would not have been what it was without the following great people. TJ Shevlin. Appreciate you, buddy. Thanks for everything. John Zelenak, a.k.a. John of the Sewer Den. John, appreciate your time in the hangs, man. And last but not least, Aaron Trites of Now or Never Comics. I appreciate you, Aaron. Thanks for letting me hang at the shop. Hope you guys are uh, recovering from San Diego Comic-Con well. And hope that your lives are getting back to somewhat of a quote-unquote normal. But yeah, shout out those guys. TJ, John, Aaron, also Diego, what up, buddy? Thank you guys again for making SDCC this year super rad. I would also like to shout out a couple guys who you're actually about to hear in the panel, Tom Waltz and Bobby Curnow. I actually got to meet Tom and Bobby at the show this year, and I'm very happy to report that they are both super rad guys. I chopped it up with Tom on multiple occasions, actually, and spent about 10 minutes with Bobby after the Road to 100 panel. I appreciate the generosity that these guys showed me. They were uh, generous with their time and willingness to talk turtles, even though I'm sure that's you know what they spend anywhere from seventy to ninety percent of their day job doing. They took the time out to you know talk behind the scenes stuff with me, and I appreciate that. The big thing that I appreciated, though, the key idea or feeling that I walked away with from these encounters was. These dudes really care, like really care. 
Tom and Bobby want this book to be great because they care. They care about the characters, the story, the fans, and I couldn't be happier about that. As, as a Turtles fan and as a Turtles comics fan, it was really great talking to two of the main dudes behind it and seeing the passion they have for the characters, the joy that they have making these things happen. Super awesome. So thanks, Tom. Thanks, Bobby. I appreciate your guys' time. And if you hear this episode, you'll be hearing from me soon. You guys can find Tom on Twitter at Tom Waltz. That's T-O-M-W-A-L-T-Z. And you can find Bobby on Twitter and Instagram at the Disastrix. I believe that's how you say that, but that is T-H-E-D-I-S-A-S-T-R-I-X. Give them a follow if you want to stay up on all things TMNT Comics. And Tom, Bobby, once again, thank you guys for your time. I appreciate it. Last but not least, guys, shout-outs-wise at least, I want to take a quick second to shout-out my TMNT podcast friends and make sure you guys know they exist and know that they are awesome and know that if you're listening to Booyaka Show, you should maybe be listening to these guys as well. So shout-out to Turtle Flakes, TMNT Minute, Turtle Power Podcast, TMNT Dare Talk, and Turtle Soup. There's a few more. I don't really listen to them that much. I don't want to shout out guys that I don't listen to because to me that makes me sound like a phony. But the guys that I just shouted out, I have spent time listening to their podcasts. I listen to most of them regularly and I appreciate what they all bring to the table. It's nice knowing I'm not alone as a TMNT podcaster and it's a great community filled with great people. So check some of those other shows out. Once again, we have Turtle Flakes, TMNT Minute, Turtle Power Podcast. TMNT Dare Talk, and Turtle Soup. And obviously, Booyaka Show, a TMNT podcast. So, all right, guys, that is enough from me, for now at least. Let's get into this panel. Just like last time, just want to throw something out there. Be careful with your volume. There's random bursts of applause that get a little loud here and there. The guests, uh, they speak at different volumes. Little warning there, be careful with your volume. I do my best I can here in the you know editing software that I have to balance those things out and make sure that they're not too crazy, but it's going to sound different in my headphones than it sounds in your car or on your phone or in your headphones or on your computer speakers, so on and so forth. So just watch out for that volume. Also, as with last time, the audio is going to cut a few random times. Uh, because of time recording constraints with my camera, I'll pop in to notify you of the break and then pop back out. And also, like last time, I will be back after the panel to pick out a couple things to discuss and be hyped about with you guys. But without further ado, Ninja Turtle fans, are you ready for the TMNT Road to 100 panel? I hope so. Enjoy, guys. That's all your fault. 
<laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. I always say that I would not have the best job in the world if I did not have the best fans in the world, and I appreciate you following everything that I do and the, the, the stuff that I do with these guys. Um, but I want to say one thing really quick, because, you know, when you work on comic books, and I've done it my whole life, um, it takes a village to make a comic book. It really does. It takes... <laughs> what? Yeah, <laughs> uh, It takes a village to make a comic book, and with the IDW Turtle Universe, um, not only do we have some of the most talented guys, um, an incredibly gifted, talented editor, Bobby Turner. The amazing love and support from Nickelodeon, Joan Hilty, and Emily. the most talented artists um, on the planet, in my opinion. They're all half my age, they all draw better than I do, and they're mind-blowing and cool. I'm in motion here because there's one guy at the center of all this. This guy. Bishop and some of the stuff that's been spinning around 
is sort of really put him in place that um, he starts questioning his anger, what's the root of his anger, all these different things that sort of come to the come to this boiling point. Um, and uh, it was it's almost as intense for me to go through because because my script sometimes uh, can be pretty loose and I do a lot of storytelling in my layouts. Um, but I got this really great editor who made me rewrite it multiple times so it made more sense um, to really help me uh, dive into what I wanted to say with it. And that I sort of put into the mix with uh, the incredible Ben Bishop, who's a, an artist, a fellow man, who's fantastic. He brought it to life. And really sort of set a number of things in motion and what all those macros did and really sort of set up what these guys are about to go through, which is really intense. Yeah. Uh, so next kind of big piece that's being set up here in City uh, of War is uh, Splinter, who is at this point in the series in charge of the Foot Clan, um, and Karai returning to sort of reclaim that. Um, you guys uh, want to talk a little bit about how, how that dynamic's playing out? Uh, well, right now it's playing out very poorly. Splinter take over 
the, uh, the footprint. And that was, that was something, I mean, we've been working on this book for a long time, and we've had, we've had a lot of things happen along the way, but there were certain milestones we wanted to hit, you know, every step of the way. And one of those milestones was that Splinter would become the, the master of the foot plan, which was, had never been done. It was pretty bizarre, but it wasn't so, uh, I think, surprising in a sense in our book because he had been a member of the foot plan. But what he saw was an opportunity. He was battling the foot plan. He led the foot plan to protect innocence. Then he was he was expelled and was escaping the foot plan to protect his family. Um, and then and when they were reincarnated in this modern world, the foot plan was still here, the threat was still to his family. So when he had this opportunity to take over the foot plan, it's kind of like saying, I can make it into something that will keep my family safe now. I can mold this into something that's that's better. But it's a criminal organization. I mean, it is, I mean, our criminals, if you really look at the history in a lot of ways. So if you're going to take over a criminal organization, you will probably start doing criminal things. And there's no way that you can avoid that. But it's kind of like that, that everybody does this in life where you're just like, I'll just do this one one more time and then I won't do it anymore. But I can justify it because if I do this bad thing, then I won't do it again. But it's just bad things and bad things and bad things. And I think he finally got to a point in this story where he's losing his sons. He has he has uh, come to the realization that what he is is in the last sentence, a criminal overlord who is not able to to turn that dark to light. And so the last hope he has is to hand this over to Pride, but hopefully hand it over to Pride in a way that is peaceful and amicable for both families. But again, Pride wants to hold on to this, this one strand of, of the old ways, which is that these kids know about us, they're either going to become soldiers or we kill them, and he can't allow that. And this is where we see the, the strawberry that comes back. Shades are great. <coughs> Next up on the threat list here, we've got the EPF. And Agent Bishop. <laughs> uh, he is freaky, that's correct. Uh, Tom, you want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the EPF and the kind of threat that they represent in City of War? The Earth Protection Force was my chance. Everybody who, who knows me personally knows I'm, I'm uh, a conspiracy guy. I love all that stuff. I'm not, I'm not going to rain your ears anyone, but I'll have to watch people try to do it. But uh, we, we actually, you know, the protection force is something that's been in the turtle over before. So we had this opportunity to cherry pick from prior iterations, and I always like Agent Bishop a lot. He's he's kind of like that that mysterious G-man who uh, who operates uh, kind of behind the scenes to protect the planet at all at all costs, no matter what it takes. So in, the, in our story now, you know, up to up to now, they've been doing that, just that they they fought Triceratons that came from Dimension X. But there's another mission he has, and that's to also destroy what he calls monsters, in this case, mutants. And so he's, he's the Triceratons have left, and now what's left are the mutants. And so he's, he's going after the turtles and, and creatures like them, like Ohio, other mutants. And in, in our City of War story, he, he knows that he needs to, I think, get a little closer to the turtles in order to beat them because they've kind of foiled them up to this point. And so we'll find out when, when it's a surprise to come. He will start recruiting folks close to them to, a, to enable that that uh, that close contact and hopefully destroy them much easier or once and for all, um, which he's been failed to do so far. Um, but the, the irony of Agent Bishop, if you can read the book, is he is actually not that guy. 
That's that is actually a suit that he lives inside of. Yeah. He's, a, he's somebody that never fully formed. Uh, he's human, but his, his father, who was also the first head of the EPF, has ingrained in him all along that his it doesn't matter what he looks like. He's a human, and if you're a human, your job is to protect humanity from monsters. And so that he it's it's kind of this thing where he's using alien tech to fight aliens. He's using their weapons against them, and this is something that his father had engraved from him from an early age at Area 51. <laughs> because all I wanted was an excuse to write about um, President Eisenhower. <laughs> so from here, we're all going to Area 51. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so next up, we got Old Hob here and uh, the Mutanimals. Uh, and this is from uh, Slash's funeral. Um, so obviously the Mutanimals are in a rough place. They have lost one of their own. Um, he has talked a little bit about uh, where this puts these guys. Um, I just want to say, otherwise, uh, I, I was really against uh, killing Slash. I really don't. I don't like killing characters. I feel like they still have more stories. So if you're a Slash fan, you have these guys to blame. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, 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 they're absolutely right. Uh, they really did push things into the next level. Uh, really galvanized Hob and raised the stakes in a really dramatic way as we end, as we entered into this uh, year leading up to 100. Um, yeah, and it's, 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 I, I was about to say unhinged Hall, but I don't think it has. It's, it's just focused him. Um, he's, he's more scary and dangerous than ever because he's got, you know, that, and I not believe that in what he's doing now. And, and he's, and it's funny because he's, he's so pro-mutant, he would never work with humans, but he's, in a way, he's like, like the mirror image of, uh, Agent Bishop now. He realizes that if he's going to have any success, then he's going to have to, to work with his enemies against his enemies. And he's, it's kind of fascinating to see that develop. And then a little behind the scenes thing. So yes, we, we wanted to kill Slash. We, we talked Bobby into that. But there is a, a part of that, that scene. I turned that scene in when he was killed. And Bobby said, you know what? What if somewhere in there, Mikey gives him a candy bar? So that was Bobby's idea. And I thought, yeah, let me add that in. And that's one time I was actually with my family. We were on vacation. I was writing on vacation. And I'm sitting in uh, our hotel room, and I actually started crying. Because it, and I said, this, this is going to work. Because the guy and I wrote it. Yeah, that's, that's the job of any editor is to make the writer cry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I also want to ask you, what's, what's interesting is, you know, with, with Slash's evolution, and he's been an important character from, from very early on in this series, um, the, the, the sort of the paces and the things that we did with him, from the way that he entered this series as a sort of raging, murderous sort of creature, and you see how he's discovered and was brought into this level of humanity, sort of like this long conversation about the flowers were out on sort of concept where, you know, he becomes smart, he becomes so smart that it's sort of like he starts questioning, you know, what his position is in this universe and the whole universe and what's done, and I thought that, you know, and we, you know, and I stress this that I can't, anybody that will give me 10 minutes to carry on about it and say the most beautiful part of the IDW um, universe is that it's just so specifically story-driven. It was like, um, it had to evolve naturally, it had to evolve organically, it had to develop the place that, you know, basically made the writer cry. It was that emotion was so vested in those characters that it was important that he had to, it had to go this way. It was almost like you, not that you didn't have any choice to do it, but it made the most sense. It's like, you know, like issue 95, which we'll talk about. And speaking of what makes the most sense, uh, Baxter Stockman running for mayor. <laughs> <laughs> and supported by, <laughs> supported by April. Yes. Uh, you guys want to talk a little bit about how that's shaping up? 
Uh, actually, the, the first uh, Mirage Turtles comic I ever read was number two. Uh, I missed number one, but I read number two, and to this day I've got a huge soft spot uh, for Baxter and the Mousers uh, from that. Uh, but we I just want to uh, you know, uh, honor that history and uh, bring it. You know, we started with uh, April working on Stockton, but then she's gone off and you know, dance school and done other stuff. But I think it was important for us to bring that dynamic back. Um, but yeah, Tom, you, you, you love writing Baxter's. Baxter's Baxter's my, my favorite character in all the Turtles are right, by far. And I always tell people this story. When I first got into comics, I, I, was, I had the, the, the good fortune of working with Gene Simmons from Kiss quite a bit. And Gene is a very eccentric guy. And, and actually, if you know him in person, he's a really a cool guy, a really awesome guy. But Gene has this kind of like, confidence that he exudes that he's going to say it, if you don't like it, oh well, you know, he's still Gene Simmons. And I always tell him, Baxter Stockman is that guy. You know, he, just, he's, he has no filter, but that's okay because he already knows he's the smartest guy, so he can't be saying anything wrong or doing anything wrong. So it's been a lot of fun because our April from the very beginning, one of the first things when we talked to Nickelodeon and Joan and the folks over there at, at the start was she was never going to be a damsel in distress, never. We, didn't, we never wanted her to be that. She was going to be... She's supporting him, but really, she's kind of manipulating Baxter Stockton. This is her way of kind of keeping an eye on him because it's just better to, you know, it's the devil you keep close, I guess. And so she knows that, that he needs to be kept under a watchful eye, but also putting him in these what, supposed positions of power, like being the mayor, also kind of kneecaps him because sometimes the most dangerous thing about him is that he's a scientist. And if you kind of pull a little bit of that away from him, he can't be developing these inventions and weapons that might cause her friends harm. Um, but the funny thing is, behind the scenes, and this will, this will develop over the next few issues, Baxter's kind of got some, some things going on too, so it's, it's a fun chess game. And there, was, there was an early macro series with, uh, with Baxter where we kind of created that theme for him that he, he, from an early age, played chess with his dad. And that was like something they did together. So life is like a chess game for Baxter, but right now his, his biggest opponent is April. It's a lot of fun to write and watch. Uh, also on this slide, we've got Casey Jones and Jenica. Uh, obviously, we will talk more about Jenica in, yeah. in just a bit here. Uh, but uh, let's uh, set up what what the status of their relationship is going into the City of War. You know what? They're, they're both fighters. Jenica is, uh, has become over the years, since issue 50, she, the, when Jenica was introduced to, to the book, she was an assassin that actually worked for for uh, Master Shredder, and she was good at what she did. She, she and a lot of ways, like Karai, believed absolutely 100% in what the Foot Clan was doing, and wanted to see the Foot Clan stay strong. When Splinter took over, she thought we were going to become weak, so she decided to try to kill Splinter. Uh, the end result was Splinter basically kicked her butt in a big fight that they had, but Splinter saw something in her, saw something in her that he, he, he recognized and wanted to actually hone, and he wanted her not to lose that, that, that fierceness or that strength. He just wanted to kind of, in a, in a way, like a, kind of a macrocosm of what he was doing with Foot Clan. Let's use this for the good and not the bad. And so Jenica, who, here's a little trivia about Jenica. When we, I, I, I want to get this, because a lot of people have been asking questions online. I know we're going to get to Jenica, but this is how, what happens with Jenica. So Jenica starts this way. Bobby says, we should have an assassin try to kill Master Splinter, because thematically we wanted to show that Master Splinter wasn't going to be weak, he was going to be strong. You know, and he wasn't going to be what everybody was expecting. Uh, then he said, kind of interesting, and she was, was female. And I thought, that's cool. And then I thought, 
and she had no name. It was going to be a throwaway character, probably in, in that one issue. And then I said, you know, he probably would unmask her if he beat her. So I thought, what would be kind of a cool thing to see if she was female and they unmasked her? So then I thought, Tank Girl. Tank Girl, to me, is this cool, fierce-looking character with his clean haircut. And so I thought, that would be cool. And then I thought, if her hair is blonde, she probably has some Scandinavian in her. And so the name Jenica, which will become a very important name, I hope, in, in Turtle Lore moving forward, everybody asks, is it from some artist who do have this plan? No, she wasn't planning to be what she is now back then. Her name came from Google. I went on Google and I searched common Scandinavian female names. And I was thinking, the only thing I know, I set the rule for myself, was it couldn't start with an S, because we have so many characters that start with S, Fred Shredder, Splinter, it couldn't start with A, Alex Angel, all of it. So I said, let me just look, and that name popped out at me. It just looked cool, I like how it looked. And so that's where Jenica's name came from. Uh, and then, after the issue were over, and I turned him into Bobby, I said, you just have a feeling about something. And I said, I had the same feeling about Harold Lilja that Brian mentioned created with uh, his Don Pellow's buddy, I said, I don't think we should let her go. There's something about her, there's something that I really like about this character, there's an opportunity here. And we'll come back to that, but that's that's where Jennifer comes from, and that's, that's how she started. So sometimes things are meant to be, you just don't know it. Happy accident. Yeah. <laughs> wild cards in the mix here. Uh, on, on the left, we've got the Rat King and Kitsune, um, and the whole pantheon uh, in the background there, and then on the right we've got Leatherhead, who's been acting weird. Um, Bobby, you want to talk about these guys a little bit? Yeah, I, I don't want to talk about them too much, because their roles uh, haven't really been revealed yet in, in City at War. We, we, we've hinted, we've shown, uh, I think, Leatherhead just kind of watching things, um, but I personally really love uh, characters that are villains, but they're not necessarily always in that villainous category. Uh, and I think what we've done really well in this series is show that everyone has has shades of gray. Um, what Kevin just said in that great uh, prelude to the first City of War um, is, you know, there, there's we live in an unpredictable, weird, weird world, and I love that we've got characters that that can reflect that. Um, you know, Raccoon is maybe our version of, of our of Joker, um, and, and Leatherhead is. You know, he's just a tormented soul uh, who I think, if left his own devices, just would want to be left alone and, and would not be a bad force to anyone. Um, but he's 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 set into circumstances where he knows that he doesn't belong, mutants shouldn't belong, uh, and he feels like he is an abomination, and that that influences a lot of his thinking. Yeah, I just thought you guys wrote there was a lot of uh, Loki, so yeah, Raccoon as well. So like, yeah, it's kind of messing with stuff as he's enjoying the heck out. But the one thing about the Wrecking Our Wrecking is very different. My one of my favorite scenes in any comic book ever that I've ever read is the Rat King sequence in the original City at War. And I, I always knew I didn't want to All right, Turtle fans, right there is the first break in the panel. Hope you guys are enjoying everything so far. There's a lot of great information there, a lot of great attitudes between the creators. And with that said, let's jump back into it. Here we go. It needs to be special. So we kind of went a different direction with Rat King because I love that one so much. Here we are, you know, almost 100 issues later, and in this story, we're going to have finally that opportunity to kind of pay homage to that moment in our book with our Rat King. So, so this is very exciting for me and terrifying because that, that scene is, is huge for me, something that's really inspired me. 
right, so that brings us right up into uh, City of War itself. Uh, this is one of the first big things that happens, uh, is Karai runs a sword through Jenica. Um, Tom, actually, uh, you want to just like talk us through what, what we're seeing as like uh, story beats of City of War here? So, yeah, going back to what I was saying about Jenica, what happened was we, we wanted to keep that character around, and as time passed, with Splinter taking over the Foot Clan and that causing the chaos amongst his own family and kind of a division, the, the Turtles left. They, they formed their own clan, clan model, and Leonardo was, was running that clan. Uh, but, but Jenica stayed behind. Jenica stayed loyal. It, that's a huge trait for loyalty. She stayed loyal to, to Splinter. And there, there was a point in our, in our during our run when we did uh, Turtles Universe, TMNT Universe books, and Brown Rebel did a backup story that was kind of an origin story for Jenica that revealed how she's come from a troubled past too. She had troubled youth um, and how she was recruited and how she was vulnerable and, and at that point able to be so easily recruited into the Foot Clan. But what the Foot Clan gave her was some structure and, and kind of like the family she didn't have. They just happened to be criminals that sent her out to kill people. But in her mind it wasn't the killing that she was enjoying, it was that she had people who cared about her that she belonged to, and that was why she felt threatened when Splinter took over. So now, you know, Splinter's in charge, Karai wants to take over, and Jenica sees a, a chance when she's invited by Karai to maybe be the peacemaker, because she's, she's become the second in command to the, the, the Foot Clan, she, uh, to Master Splinter, and she's also kind of become like a surrogate daughter to him, and in some ways, kind of a sister figure to the turtles. And so she, behind Splinter's back, so decides to go meet Karai and see if she can't work this out. So there's no no fighting. So this is not the assassin. This is the person she's now become. Um, and Karai, what Karai wants is that loyal fighter. She remembers her from before and tries to talk her coming over. Why don't you come with us? Because we are going to become that fighting clan again that you belong to. And that's the point. That's the pivotal point for Jenica, where we realize this isn't about a foot clan anymore. It just happened. The foot clan is the rapid right now. The, the the real meat of this is that she has a family and her, her family is Splinter and the mutants and, and, and their friends and you know April and Casey, all these people now are her family and she realizes I'm not loyal to the Foot Clan. I'm loyal to these people, specifically these people who've been loyal to me. And her eye sees this as as the opportunity to then escalate. If she can't get a yes, she's not gonna take a no and this is her response. And this is what sets off the actual full-scale war. Uh, so then, uh, moving on to uh, these pages, and uh, there are so many mutants on the board right now, right? We've got the, the null mutants, uh, we've got the mutanimals. Uh, what, what's going on with these guys at this point in the story? Well, as Jesse said, you know, Slash is a real galvanizing factor, but uh, Kevin has always really, uh, I think, been wanting to up the ante with Hob. Uh, you know, he's talked about putting him in different costumes, and uh, you're just saying, okay, when, when are we going to get to Hob really un unleashed? The past, you know, uh, you know, 40 issues or so, uh, they've been around, but they haven't been, uh, you know, mixing it up as much as, as maybe we had in the beginning of the series, so... Um, I think that really a lot of that influence came from Kevin wanting to really kind of unleash the full potential pop. Um, so here he's, uh, he's attacking Null Industries who uh, are in the business of making mutants. Um, it, was, it was fun to see all, the, all of them uh, team up with Raph who's had enough of uh, the Turtles nonsense and, and what he sees as them prevaricating. And also he's, 
you know, thanks to Kevin's story, he's in a really bad place and a really you know volatile place. Um, so they, they're a natural pair uh, at this moment, even though they historically have always hated each other. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's an unusual pairing, and it's but it makes sense. It's natural. Mm -hmm. You know, Harvard's been such a wonderful character since the beginning, but he's always been this sort of wild card in, in many respects. That it's sort of like, you know, that cat-like stuff, sort of wait and watch, and then you finding your opportunities. And I was always, you know, uh, I, I love when the channels became an important part of this uh, IDW universe, if you, if you will, because it, it's my favorite, one of my favorite term universes ever. Is, uh, but I thought that Hobb was something like, I kept sort of, you know, nudging you, like, I want to see him go to the next level, I want to see, because he's like, you can see the intensities there, you can see him, you know, especially as he was building towards losing Slash and the different maneuvers that he was doing from the attacks on Colonel Island, and then and just so many different aspects of waiting for that. And so it was just, you know, one of those things that you had to keep it in check, it's story first. And, and as it evolves, it'll evolve, exactly, so it's, it's falling but, but as an artist, you all, I, I think it's important in our meetings, you remind us, it's, this is an art form and it's visual. And one of the key components, I think, to, to the change is seeing the change. You just don't want to read it; you want to see it. And so Kevin would say, "He needs a new, he needs a new uniform. He needs to become. This is the time to become Magneto now. This is the time to put on the, the big red cape and all that. So let's let's come up with something new that when you see him, it's visually stunning. And so I, I was thinking about it when I was writing it, and I kept that in mind. And so his outfit is all white, but that's a funeral. So when you first see him in an all white outfit, I just thought. That was kind of a sign that he's stepping it up. He's not wearing the, you know, the white beater tank top anymore and the, the jeans. He's got this this serious outfit that's, but it's in stark contrast to the moment, which is a funeral. It's kind of like saying, "No, I'm not giving up. No, this. Yeah, we're in mourning." And he, and to indicate that, he wears slashes. And there's the second break in the action, Turtle fans. We are going to jump right back into it and finish strong. Let's go. Here is the end of the TMNT Road to 100 panel. Cowabunga! The white uniform to me kind of represented this idea that, but we're not lying down. We're, you know, you, we're not going to hide anymore. You can't miss this now. Um, and it was also, in full disclosure, stolen from the Matrix, because I like the one girl that wears the whole way out there. So I thought, I wanted to look like that, and, and our artist took, took care of that for us. Uh, maybe speaking of stolen from the Matrix, um, we, we, we've got uh, Metalhead who at some point had Donatello's consciousness inside him, but that was a long time ago. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, the state of uh, Metalhead right now. I understand it better than me, Bobby. I write it, but Metalhead is bizarre to me. It's, it, and this is the funny thing, Metalhead is challenging to me because other art writers like Paul Lord have done such a good job in the, the books they've written for us to create this situation that it's almost like a learning process for me with writing Metalhead. But the, the, the key component for me is that Metalhead has Donatello's memories from when Donatello was kind of implanted in Metalhead way back in issue 44. Um, and so he knows what Donatello knows. The thing is, he's, he's got everything, all the knowledge, all the the, the memories just doesn't have the the it part of all of us, the you know that soul part, and so that is a some, something that we're going to kind of explore. Would that be an advantage or a disadvantage in, in warfare? But I think, I think you get that. No, I, I think that you know what Metalhead has done and become is just incredibly interesting. You know, just as a you know as a walk out, like as you start looking at these chess pieces that have been put together. But I, I just love Metalhead's whole art, right up until now. And what's 
I think a lot of people um, in, in the image series, uh, you know, Donatello gets injured and he gets a cybernetic body. I think a lot of people thought that was our homage to that, but uh, in, in reality, you know, I always thought Fugitoid was such a fascinating character. Um, I thought it would be really interesting to, you know, we had that technology exists in the Turtles universe. It would be really interesting to see what would happen if a turtle had to go into a body. Um, and of course, everyone just remembers, you know, the death of Donatello, and that's all that happened. But in my mind, I just want to see Donatello's mind in, in, a, in a robot. That doesn't got me excited. But it has, it has really gone to an interesting place where other writers have taken. It's amazing in interviewing you guys about uh, for the oral history about issue forty four. Um, I was like, all right, now we're at the death of Donatello, and then you would repeat back to me, yeah, when Donatello got hurt. It's like killing him. It doesn't want to hear about that. I'll never forgive you for killing Donatello, and I always say, but I did it. <laughs> well, you know that was it was funny because it was such an in, in, you know. It was, it's such a bizarre thing in, in the coolest possible sense, and I mean that you know in the most wonderful way. And I, what I mean is that you know when we uh, write in and these mindless we do is we have these sessions and we sort of talk about this, and then the scripts, you know, Tom does the script, and then we see the artwork coming in, and we we're so emotionally invested. Where we it's almost like we're writing all this stuff for ourselves, I think, in so many ways. And then you sort of then we're working a couple issues ahead as well, and so like we we already like. Tom comes up with this great, intense, emotional beat with the uh, uh, Rocksteady when they do the Donatello, and, and it's like, wow, it's like, that's intense, and that's great to fans of my day, so we just came up, you know, Dark Leo, and all this other stuff, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're three issues ahead, and Donatello number 44 comes out, and suddenly, what? You, we know, we didn't kill him, no. yeah. <laughs> we're, we're like already way over here. We're going to have we should have So what it, what it said to us in, in many ways is that, um, at least to me personally, for sure, is um, the commitment the fans had to the series and how emotionally invested you were in it. That was, you know, because, you know, it was just one of those that we said, oh, this is such a great story beat. We loved it. We loved the intensity. And then when, you know, the reaction sort of exploded, we were like, wow, they're all with us on this ride. That's yeah. Really, you know, super, super exciting. And it was, you know, that's the time where, I know recently Tom King was talking about this and Batman was like, but... Death threats are real, and you get them sometimes, and that was a time when I got a few. So it's, uh, it's, there's a lot of passionate fans out there, for sure. <laughs> 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 so this is uh, from you know, not released issue, yes? This is from 96. Coming up. Uh, so here's the next big thing is Jenica is now the fifth turtle. I do, very much so, because I've been holding this one back for a long time. You know, it's funny, I just want to interrupt for a second, only because, um, you know, we would we talk about different things in all these meetings, and one of the things that I worked on that I know everybody loves and adores was the Venus, the Milo. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that um, I always said was that, you know, I just thought Venus, I mean, uh, Venus was a great character, a great opportunity, but it was just really badly played in so many, in so many ways, it just was not rolled out. Um, and, and Tom, I think, always had this in the back because he's like all of us here. We love strong female characters. It's, it's the foundation of so many parts of uh, our lives and what we like to write and enjoy. Um, but so with Venus and Tom, I think, you know, when he first saw that, there was a spark in his eyes. Like, I'm, I gotta figure this out. I, I know this is. Gonna, I think it was probably what a year, maybe more, of you sort of 
this fandom is the best fandom in the world. And I've worked for a lot of fans. I'm going to take a turtle fan, but the best fan. Uh, 
actually heard her name here from Google. <laughs> um, so we're not going to spend too much time on uh, sort of past stuff because we're, we're going along. But also we've talked about most of it already, so good work us. Um, uh, oh, the Pantheon. Uh, let, let's talk a little, a little bit about these guys um, and just what they've become in, in the series. Because um, you sort of built like a, a family first and then a, a mythology um, second. Um, Bobby, can you talk a little bit about the formation of the Pantheon? Yeah, well, um, you know, Mateus Santoloco uh, did the fantastic series. Woo! Really important for us um, and has influenced so much of our series. And he created this character of Kitsune, uh, who's this immortal being who's, who's kind of been behind the scenes manipulating everything. Um, and we just responded to that character so much, and obviously, family is such a the major theme of our series. We thought, okay, what happens if she's got a family too, and they're just as dysfunctional as any other family? Um, and you know, I, I think a lot of us here are huge fans of Neil Gaiman and Sandman, and I always loved the, the Endless and how they were all so different from each other. But you know, you can they, when they talk to each other, you can tell how much history there is and how much they are a family. And so that I really responded uh, to that. And so our pantheon is, is sort of a reflection of that. Um, seems that like a man moth is, is sort of like a destruction. He just wants to be left alone, and he's a big guy, but you know, he just wow. he just doesn't want to be a part of the rest of the family's nonsense. Um, so yeah, so they're, you know, we haven't seen them much yet in this storyline, but we haven't forgotten about them. Uh, there's, there's big plans for them uh, to be happening soon. Uh, oh, oh, Baron. He's so gross. Um, so the, this is uh, this is from issue fifty. Uh, this is the the, the gauntlet, um, and I just wanted to like get a sense of uh, scale when you guys are going into writing the end of a story that you've been building up to for years and years and years. Uh, obviously, this you do like a big brawl between a, a ton of uh, a ton of mutants, and it's super cool. Um, is there something like that coming up? Yes. <laughs> Maybe not this one. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, I think uh, just we're running short on time. Uh, there, you're going to see some, you've already seen similarities, how we kind of had this big event. Uh, leading up to 15, we had uh, the death of Donatello. Here you've seen Jenica's uh, transformation. So there's going to be some more callbacks to uh, to the, the storyline leading up to number 50, and then some pretty major curveballs too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty much probably for the last. Uh, Either probably the last year or so, I've been doing uh, conventions and, and, and doing my little slideshow. It's been brutally painful because I know what's going to happen. And all I can tell is people who are just getting into the city of what I just tell them. If you're reading the series, um, get a seatbelt and buckle up. And uh, this guy get crazy. Yeah. So here's a, is this also from uh, 97? This is issue 97, yeah. So this is issue 97. She will get the, the yellow mask, and there's actually a, uh, like everything else that we do in the book, we there's a reason for the yellow mask and, and why LFX is the one handing it to her. Um, and that, that was a really fun scene to write. And, and really poor people have seen that. But I, I find that you know, there's a lot of transition happening here. There was transition that happened uh, with the character LFX. There's transition that happens with people in this world. And sometimes you realize that maybe the uh, you're not in, I, I guess for lack of a better term, the right skin. But when you do find who you really are, you tend to be a happier, stronger person, and I think that's kind of thematically what we're going to slowly discover with Jenica is that this, you know, being mutated into a, a turtle could be a catastrophe, I suppose, for some people. But maybe 
that for Jenica, this is just the next step in her evolution to becoming what she really needs to be, to be, to be fully herself. Uh, and then we've got some uh, Dave Wacker covers.
And that, Turtle fans, was the TMNT Road to 100 panel. Pretty rad, right? We got some great insights and info from the team, and we got some big-time news. So I'm just going to take some time now to break down the points from the panel that jumped out to me. Let's get into it. First things first, I want to say that it's pretty crazy for Tom Waltz to be writing up to 100 issues. For him to be the writer from start to finish of 100 issues is wild. You don't see that a lot in comics nowadays with all of the reboots and renumberings and changes of creative teams. In my experience, it's pretty rare. Probably not throughout all of comics. It's not that rare, but pretty pretty interesting to see nowadays. Pretty cool to see nowadays. So props to Tom Waltz. Props to Bobby Kernow. Really hyped for those guys to be hitting issue 100. Bobby pointed this out, and I always loved the notion or idea from the 1990 movie that the Foot Clan recruited the misled youth of New York City, and I appreciated that in City at War that became kind of a sticking point and obviously became a big plot story point where the Foot Clan, or excuse me, Karai, wanting to take control back of the Foot Clan and wanting to recruit these young orphans, but Splinter was like, nah, not happening, homie. Pretty cool little, you know, similarity or correlation there. Anything that kind of refers back or homages the 1990 movie will have a special place in my mind and heart, so props there. Interesting to me, too, to see that Bobby, or excuse me, to hear, I saw it, you guys didn't, but you heard it. It was interesting to me that Bobby was against killing Slash, but that he came up with the idea that Mikey give him the chocolate bar. Guys, the chocolate bar scene absolutely floored me. It killed me. I was a mess. I shed some grown man tears for sure while reading it. And then while recounting the ending to my fiance sitting on the couch, I was just telling her what happened. And I cried. Good stuff. I told Bobby that to his face and was like, hey man, thanks. Because I'm a guy that likes to feel things and I like these you know, stories that I get lost in to make me feel things. So I really appreciated that. I thought it was a really, really nice touch when Michelangelo comes up with the chocolate bar and he hands it to Slash. And obviously he used to give not smart Slash the chocolate bar. And now here he is handing one last chocolate bar to Intelligent Slash. And he tells him chocolate is for heroes or whatever he says. I'm not sure specifically. That got me. But then the thing that put me over the edge was as they're flying off, as Sally's flying Slash off over the water, and he's about to jump, he's already started eating the chocolate bar. You know, he's holding it, it's half open, he's got some chocolate on his face, and when he jumps out, the scene of him like floating down towards the water, he's holding the chocolate bar, chocolate bar, you know, chocolate residue on his face. Wonderful stuff, man. Really, really awesome. Love the way they pulled that off, so thanks, Bobby, for that, and uh, Thanks for making a 30-year-old Turtles fan shed some tears over chocolate. Also really interesting to hear, guys, that Baxter Stockman is Tom Waltz's favorite character to write. And he said that with such gusto and verve behind it that you just, you knew, like, he's not just saying it to say it and be funny. I fully 100% believe that Baxter Stockman is Tom Waltz's favorite character to write. And that is so funny to me, because to me, Baxter is definitely a mainstay, but he's 
always one of the least interesting guys or one of the weaker guys or one of the kind of one-note villains. Starts as a mad scientist, gets transformed into a fly, becomes a basic lackey. That's about that. I guess it, it kind of makes sense that Tom likes to write Baxter because he's giving Baxter more than that to work with. He's adding more depth and more complexity and more agency to Baxter's character and personality, so I do appreciate that. It's just not, not the first pick that I would have made if somebody was like, hey, who do you think Tom Walt's favorite character to write is? I would not have guessed Baxter Stockman. But, again, that's probably why Baxter Stockman is being written so well this time around. I thought it was funny, Tom talking about how Jenica got her name, which I think the name Jenica is super rad, but it's super funny to me that it just came from Google. You know, sometimes things happen easier than we may think. I, I know I, for one, am always thinking, oh, how, how'd they come up with this? Or how did they get to this? Or how did this come up? Why is he wearing that? Why does she look like this? Sometimes it's just as easy as, well, Google. And with Jenica's name, we know that that's the case. Somebody brought up, they brought up the dynamic between Hob and Raph and how these guys hate each other, but at this point in the story, they are coexisting, and I am really, really interested in that dynamic. I don't love Hob as a character, but I think he's a great foil to Splinter. You know, he's a very interesting counterpoint or counterbalance to the version of leadership that Splinter offers, or maybe even Leo offers. Hob is a very different dude with a, with a very different set of beliefs. And again, him and Raph don't like each other. So seeing them teamed up through their mutual kind of angst and anger is very interesting. And I'm very curious to see where it goes, but it also worries me about the path that Raph may be taking with all this. Um, you guys have probably heard me say this before, but Raph is my favorite turtle. And it kind of looks like we're heading in the direction of a split. You know, he's kind of mentally discombobulated from the Target R story, which the guys mentioned. He's not in a good place mentally. He's not in a good place, place emotionally with where his brothers are and his father is and the loss of Slash. And now all this stuff with the EPF and things are just coming to a head. And I think Raph is really utilizing that anger which we know is a key thing with his character, but I'm hoping that it doesn't uh, split him with his brothers. Um, I'd be bummed about that, but obviously trust the guys to you know handle it well. Bobby also referenced uh, Donnie merging into Metalhead's body and people thinking it was a shout-out or homage to the Image series. Thought that was funny slash interesting because that's exactly what I thought while I was reading all that. When, when Donnie first got injured, and or killed in that episode, episode, in that uh, in that issue. I was like, oh man, they did not just do this. And of course, it's comic books, so I'm thinking, okay, what are they going to do now? How are they going to keep this guy alive, or how are they going to bring him back? And then they throw him in Metalhead's, you know, technological shell, for lack of better terms. And I was like, oh man, they're like referencing the image book where he becomes like part turtle, part machine. That's crazy. That's so cool. What a good touch. Turns out it, you know, wasn't really inspired by that at all. It was more inspired by Fugitoid than, you know, image Donnie. So cool little thing there. 
And then, guys, we got to the big point. The big, big point. Obviously, you guys have known about this for a couple weeks now. The book has been out, but it was cool to be at the panel and have this quote-unquote revealed, but not really revealed, more so just solidified and driven home that Jenica is the fifth turtle. And just a quick little aside here, Tom said that the TMNT fandom is the best fandom. I agree. And uh, I might be biased because I'm part of the TMNT fandom, but I've had nothing but, well, it'd be a lie to say I've had nothing but good experiences, but I have had a lot of good experiences, some great experiences. I really appreciate being a part of this fandom. I've probably said that on here before, but I appreciate Tom pointing that out and recognizing that. And speaking of Tom, he is passionate about Jenica, right? I really, really appreciate and uh, really I just love how he defends the decision to mutate her, make her the fifth turtle. I appreciate how he makes sure it's known that the idea for her has been around for a while. He said he'll never pander and he wants things to feel organic and authentic. I really respect that, really appreciate it. And I loved hearing him get a little uh, defensive or kind of up in arms might not be the right word, but he was kind of, you know, planting his feet towards the uh, Jenica haters like, hey, you, w- you want to be a Jenica hater? Come talk to me about it because I'm the guy that made it happen. And so I appreciate Tom taking that stance. It was cool to see. And man, oh man, all the talk about upcoming issues, these guys were killing me because it's like we just saw in 95, we just saw Jenica become a turtle. And so in some regards, from 93 to 95, stuff happened, but it didn't feel as explosive as I'm sure some of us were feeling like it was going to feel, because uh, those, those three issues really focused on the injury of Jenica and some of the side stuff happening with like the other mob bosses and whatnot. But basically, everybody on stage in this panel said that if you think things were crazy now, just wait. And Kevin said there's going to be two double-sized issues. That's wild. So, yeah, I am super hyped, but also super worried because I like a lot of these characters and I'm worried about what's going to happen to them. And we'll find out actually in like two days. Today is I'm finishing this up, finishing recording this episode on Monday, the 29th. So here in a couple days, we're going to have issue 96, and we will see what's cracking. Anyways, speaking of new issues, they showed a cover. They showed a few covers, but the one that really got me was the cover for issue 100. It was the, sh- the one that they showed to us at the panel was done by Dave Wachter. I hope I'm saying his name right. I don't want to spoil it, so I'm not going to say it. I'm not sure if it's been seen online yet or revealed online. But if you listen closely, I believe Patrick Ellers clicks over to it, and he's like, there's a cover for issue 100. And if you listen close in the audio, you can hear me let out some uh, interesting language as they show the image of the cover. (laughs) I... uh, I didn't realize I did that at the time. So as I was listening, as I was listening back to the panel to take my little notes or whatever, I was like, ooh, uh, might want to edit that out. But 
you can really only hear it if you're trying. And I wanted the panel and the crowd reactions and stuff to be as authentic as possible. So if you turn up your volume a little bit, again, safely, so you don't blow your speakers or blow your ears out, but you turn it up just a little and, and listen closely, you can hear me. You can hear my verbal reaction to one of the covers to issue 100. Now, speaking of after 100, obviously some of the big, big news that came from this panel, and you guys have seen this on Twitter and all that stuff, I uh, really took my time getting these panel episodes out because I didn't want to rush them, and I wanted to take some time off from all the craziness of Comic-Con. I was in no rush to get these things out. I knew they were going to get here, and I really just wanted them to be good. I wasn't trying to beat anybody to the punch or reveal some news or have an exclusive or whatever. That's not what I do here. So you guys have seen on Twitter, you guys have seen on the Technodrome, you've seen everywhere there is to see it, that Sophie Campbell is taking over the writing duties after issue 100. You guys heard Bobby talk about it, you heard Tom talk about it, but then Bobby went on to the Technodrome actually and released a little statement to try and clarify some things. So I'm going to take a moment to read this uh, to you guys. This was uh, my buddy Rob at Turtle Flakes posted this to his Instagram. So shout out Rob for finding this and posting it. I'm actually a member on the Technodrome forums, but I haven't been on there in like a week or so. Again, been trying to mentally and emotionally recover from Comic-Con and do some other things. But So here's a, here's a post from Bobby says, Things are still being developed and figured out, but here's how it is looking. Sophie will be what I'm calling quote-unquote lead creative in 2020, well, starting in December's number 101, meaning she'll be writing and drawing the first story arc. TBD on if she continues to draw beyond that for the rest of the year, but she'll at a minimum be involved in guiding the story for the rest of the year. Tom, Kevin, and I will be giving notes on outlines, making suggestions, and helping to develop the big picture story as always. That doesn't mean Tom is out of scripting either. The idea is that Tom will still script five to six issues a year, either as extra issues of the ongoing or in the form of a miniseries. That's TBD until Tom finishes 100 and takes a much-deserved little break. Then, when 2021 comes along, we'll likely have a new quote-unquote lead creative, ideally a writer-slash-artist, but again, with Tom, Kevin, and I contributing. We'll see. I'm struggling to see much beyond number 100 at this point, as that's taking up most of my turtle day-to-day duties. The general idea with this approach is to allow Tom and us to recharge a bit after 100 issues and inject some new blood-slash-ideas into the series from trusted TMNT creators while still maintaining consistency and continuity. I'm sure the series will feel different to a degree, but it's my hope that it will be consistent enough that folks who have been with us for a while won't be put off. We don't want to make 101 a jumping off point. If our series has a motto, it's change is constant, so you're going to get some of that moving forward. But I know Sophie is as excited as I've ever seen her, and we're all excited for folks to see what we have planned for number 100. And then in parentheses he put, and yep, I'm staying on as editor. So thanks again, Bobby. We appreciate you taking the time to clear that up on the Technodrome. And you have it right there, guys, from Bobby's mind and mouth. That is what's happening after issue 101, or excuse me, after issue 100, starting with issue 101. I'm excited to see 
where this goes from here. I totally think that this current team deserves a break. Like, you know, I just mentioned a bit ago, doing a hundred issues is crazy. Doing a hundred issues with the same core team, super crazy. It's been a wild ride. It's been a wonderful ride. I can't remember the last time I stuck with a comic book for this long. Now, granted, I'm biased because it's Turtles, but I didn't just stick with it because it's Turtles. I've stuck with it because it's great. So to be 100% honest with you, I am slightly worried about the change that is going to happen. I like the way Tom writes the Turtles. I like what you know Kevin and Tom and Bobby bring to the story. They've been doing it for years now. So I'm worried not so much about the change, but about them not being as heavily involved. But those dudes are humans and they deserve time. They deserve lives outside of work like we all do. And so I respect them and appreciate them and I'm thankful for what we've got so far. And now I am excited and curious and interested and optimistic about what Sophie will do moving forward. I trust Sophie. She, from all accounts of the creators on the panel, she loves the turtles, cares about the turtles. She's been involved with these, with this iteration of the characters before. So have total, like, you know, faith and optimism there. And it will be cool to have some new blood and have some fresh ideas and somebody else behind, you know, the pen and the pad and all that good stuff. You know, change is a good thing. So, well, most times. But I am, like I said, I'm excited and optimistic to see this happen and see what Sophie brings to the table. It's, it was really rad hearing the other creators you know, give props to Sophie and have her back for when she takes over. Um, hyped to see what she brings because, again, she clearly cares. If all these other dudes who really care are saying that she cares, then she must really care. I'll trust anyone who cares about the characters. And that seem, she seems to fit that description. And then last but not least, guys, Kevin's closing statement was awesome. You just listen back to the way Kevin, I mean, Kevin opened the show in a great way. I'm a little bummed that I didn't capture his whole opening statement. I didn't miss much, but I was setting up my camera and he just kind of popped up there and started doing his thing and I didn't expect it. So we kind of picked up, you know, maybe 20, 30 seconds after Kevin had started, if, if even that long, but his closing statement to the panel and to the guests and to Turtles fans everywhere, always awesome. Love the, you know, positive energy and optimism and dedication that Kevin brings to the fandom and to the things that he has created. It's really great knowing that this guy has done so much with these characters and so much for the fans and still is just right there with it. You know, has his finger on the pulse, is part of the team, is involved with Nickelodeon, is involved with IDW. Really appreciate that guy and respect what he does and Obviously, none of us would be Turtle fans without him because there'd be no Turtles without him. So that is it, guys. Hope y'all got a kick out of the Road to 100 panel. I loved being there. I'm glad I got to share it with you guys. It was really cool getting to peek inside the minds of the guys behind the comics. Uh, Hope we can do some more of that soon. 
As always, Turtle fans, you can find me on Instagram at ZosoTMNT. That is Z-O-S-O-T-M-N-T. You can find Booyaka Show, a TMNT podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. think I'm on TuneIn now. I'll double check on that, but if you use TuneIn, should be there soon. And you can find us pretty much anywhere else. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you're rating and reviewing the show. That always helps. And that is all for this episode, guys. Once again, I'm Zach Norris, the host of Booyaka Show, a TMNT podcast. I'll catch y'all next time. Take care. Take care.